As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, on the show today, we're asking, should Christians save sex for marriage? Now, just a warning that today's show does deal, obviously, with adult themes, and you may want to be aware of that if there are children in the vicinity of your radio set this afternoon. But my guests on Unbelievable today are Diana E. Anderson, author of Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity. Now, Diana says that the evangelical Christian purity movement she grew up in in the USA can actually produce a culture of shame for young people. Uh, she says the church needs to reconsider its approach and see that sexual relationships before marriage aren't necessarily out of bounds for Christians. Uh, Sarah Long is my other guest. She's a youth advisor for the Diocese of Winchester and has been part of the Romance Academy. That's an organisation encouraging young people in the UK to develop a healthy view of sex and relationships. And uh, she thinks, as a Christian, that there's still life left in seeking to teach that sex is best expressed within marriage alone. So uh, it's great to have you both joining me, uh, Sarah and Diana, on the programme today. Thank you for for coming in, uh, Diana, and thank you for being on the line, Sarah. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so uh, we haven't done this sort of a subject in quite a while on mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Um, but of course, it's a subject which very often people are thinking about, Christians especially, I suppose, at a younger age. It's very often within youth circles that this issue is most discussed. Um, we'll come to Sarah for talking about that in a moment's time. But um, Diana, um, be really interested to get some of your background. Um, you're new to this programme and we, it's the first time we've met each other. Um, you're not from the United Kingdom. You're from Dakota, South Dakota. South even. Dakota, yep. Do you want to tell us uh, about life growing up and uh, and what the kind of environment was that you were in? Um, well, South Dakota is a what's considered a red state in the U.S. It's very conservative. It's um, very Republican and very um, evangelical oriented and stuff. A lot of our legislators and our and our 
representatives are um, consider themselves evangelical Christians. Have, have so. they voted in the Republican primaries yet? No, we don't vote until June. Okay. We're the last state right. to vote. So. Will Will Donald Trump be be nominated? I, I can uh, see that you're not, not exactly looking forward to that prospect. But, uh, anyway, that's a completely separate topic. Yes. Um, uh, just tell us a little bit about growing up. You obviously grew up in mm-hmm. a Christian environment. Yep, I grew up in a Baptist church that was um, right of center um, and took a purity pledge when I was 14 and um, went to a Christian college where sex outside of marriage wasn't something that was a, that was allowed in our mm-hmm. in our rule book um, and stuff. And I studied theology there. And then I got a degree uh, in English from Baylor and stuff. And now I'm here at Oxford doing a, a degree in women's studies. <laughs> so um, you've obviously been on a journey yourself in terms mm-hmm. of your, your views in this area. What mm-hmm. what made you start to change your view on sexuality in, in within Christianity? Uh, well, when I was at Baylor, I started meeting a lot more uh, different people, people who were different from me, even though Baylor is a very is a, is a conservative Christian mm. institution. And I was as I was talking to conservatives from back home and to uh, friends of mine, I realized that one of the main things that they saw about me was the fact that I was still single mm-hmm. and stuff and not the fact that like I was 24 and getting a master's degree from a top institution and that I was uh, I had a good career going and that I was doing well um, in other parts of my life. Like the fact that I wasn't married yet was yeah. the big thing. And that started me questioning like the value of the purity teaching and stuff if that's what's the most important thing about me. Yeah, so. yeah. W- was there some kind of expectation that your life was sort of meant to be on some kind of trajectory towards mm-hmm. getting married, having yep. a family, that kind of a, a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what happened then? Did did you, um, you, you you had this purity mm-hmm. pledge that you'd... Yeah. What, what did, effect did you see that having on you and your peers within the kind of Christian community you grew up in? Um, by the time I was 25, I, I had known 11 couples that had gotten married by the time I graduated. Uh, so very undergrad. young, basically. Yeah, yeah. Comparatively. Um, like yeah. before 22. Mm. Um, but by the time I was 25, six of those couples had divorced. Right. And I realized that um, a lot of what I'd been taught about marriage, which was that saving sex till marriage will help you have a good bound, a good like uh, ground for that marriage and it'll be stable and mm-hmm. all that wasn't necessarily true mm-hmm. um, and so I've, and so I started going back to the the biblical text and going back to the things I'd been taught and realized that there was a lot of shame built into how I'd been taught about it mm-hmm. and stuff and that it needed to be challenged and be changed we'll obviously um, dig into this a lot mm-hmm. more in the course of the program would you say though that your view changed overall to the view that actually it is legitimate for Christians mm-hmm. to have sexual relationships before marriage and outside marriage. Yep, absolutely. Um, so we'll obviously get to that mm-hmm. and and what kind of brought you to that position and the biblical aspects of that mm-hmm. as well as we get going in today's show. Really interesting mm-hmm. to have you on the program, though. Um, and it'd be interesting to, to kind of dig out some of the differences that exist between the U.S. culture yeah, in this definitely. respect and the, and the U.K. Helping us to do that is Sarah Long, Youth Advisor for the Diocese of Winchester, and she's been part of the Romance Academy as well. Um, uh, Sarah, thank you for joining us on the line today. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you uh, have done in the past with Romance Academy? Many people will be unfamiliar with that organisation. Do you want sure. to give, give us a sense of what it is? Yeah, so we are a healthy relationships organisation. So um, we see that a big part of our role is 
giving young people space to explore what healthy relationships look like. Um, and part of that is considering actually what are, what are their values around sex? What are their hopes and dreams around sex and relationships? And actually how do those two tie together in their decision making and where they're going? Um, so we work, um, we've worked in schools, we work with Christian youth groups, we train um, youth workers to kind of work around this area of sex and relationships. We work with parents to help them be better at engaging with their kids around this stuff. Um, and a lot of it is about building people's confidence to communicate well around this area so that young people have space to, to figure out what's going on, have conversations about it, decide what they want, decide what their values are, and then be supported in making decisions um, around that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, I was doing that for a couple of years, um, and I can honestly say it's the most fun job um, <laughs> in the world, talking to young people about sex and relationships. There's no other topic that you will get a group of teenagers that gripped into. Um, so it's great. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I grew up in a, an evangelical church um, as mm -hmm. a teenager, this was the big deal as a teenager you know the whole issue of sex and you know what was allowed what wasn't allowed um it could all get quite yeah. litigious in some <laughs> ways about, you know yeah. and 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 maybe as perhaps people you know get a bit older and perhaps do end up getting married they kind of forget just how big a deal this can be for young people mm. and so on can't they and that uh, it's not an easy time in life especially if you are trying at some level to to, to plow a different furrow mm. to to perhaps where the rest of the, mm. the the youth culture around you is so um how have you kind of how's that been what what kind of response do you get to the view that maybe that there is a kind of a, a more traditional if you like way of approaching sex and relationships sarah I think one of the things I'm passionate about is is actually providing young people with options, and um, I think I think um, there's quite some quite big cultural differences between the US culture and the UK culture on, on this kind of stuff and um, and actually I'm in huge agreement with so much of what Diana is, is as she says angry about in her book mm. um, that's going on in the States um, and I, I hope we'll get a chance to kind of unpick some of that stuff um, but in the UK one of the, the challenges actually is that not having sex is often not even presented as an option to young people there's an mm. assumption of the inevitability of um, of casual sex as the only way to do it, an inevitability of your hormones, an inevitability of other people's expectations, um, an inevitability um, around your interaction with pornography, um, all of that kind of stuff. And actually, some of what we do is just saying to young people, do you know what? There's something else that is possible that you can choose. Um, and I'm a big believer that consent is important and actually consent is only possible where people can say no to something. Um, and so one of the things we do is actually just communicating to young people, you've got options and let's look at those options. Let's think about those options. Let's think about what's possible. Let's think about what the consequences of our decisions can be in, in either situation. What is the good? What is the bad? Um, and then let's think about how we can help you um, move forward in the decisions that you've made. And obviously I bring a set of values about how um, I believe that, that looks when it, at its best um, but you're right quite often there's kind of a, a kind of litigious compliance model that we can fall into in church which is if we just give young people rules and then we scare them enough to follow them that everything will be okay but that's ridiculous because that doesn't create whole rounded individuals who can who can maintain relationships um, and who in 20 years time will be in healthy relationships that creates people who are straitjacketed and can't think and make decisions in their relationships so actually let's give young people to explore this and think about it and let's walk in it with them, sharing wisdom of the path that we've trodden um, and helping them to make good decisions for their future. 
Um, so that's my passion. Yeah, really. there's my pitch. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> good pitch. Um, we'll, we'll, well, let's get into the discussion today, and uh, um, I'd like to invite you if you're listening and you'd like to contribute your thoughts to send them in. You can do that via email, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. That's one way to do it. Uh, you can leave us a message on social media too at unbelievablejb to follow me on Twitter, facebook.com/unbelievablejb to like the Facebook page and perhaps leave your comments underneath the latest program. Uh, all of that available with today's show from the webpage, of course, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Maybe um, we'll, we'll come back to you first, Sarah, before, before handing over to Diana, just to ask, um, why do you think um, you would want to encourage Christians to save sex for marriage? What, what for you is the important aspect of that? I think at its heart, it probably comes back to, well, there's a series of things. One of them is that I think there's something really important about covenant um, in in Christianity, that actually um, there's a covenant relationship that spans through the whole of Scripture that is God with us, and his pursuit and his faithfulness and his desire to know us and love us um, and be with us. Um, and that is mirrored, um, for me, in what in what kind of the marriage relationship the marriage covenant is meant to be that there's something about faithfulness there's something about love there's something about sacrifice um all mixed up in that and i believe that the bible places into that mix that sex is designed for covenant um it's designed for intimacy it's designed um for growth of love for service for pleasure for enjoyment for children in the context of covenant um and that for me is a is a big thing and i think i see um i think i see in all sorts of areas of kind of um neuroscience and what we're finding about the neuroscience of sex um studies into um kind of how relationships are sustained what works best what doesn't work well i see kind of a resonating throughout the throughout kind of reality that the model of um, sex in the context of covenant works best. Mm. Um, and I think, I think I see, for me, in my reading of Scripture and how I see um, Scripture follow this through and how I see Jesus engage with people around this issue and how I see Paul and, and kind of the, the epistles in this, I, I see that flow um, of covenant and faithfulness and actually sex in that context. So that, that for me, has been, has been a big thing. But... And there's a huge but in the context of that. Um, if you talk about that and you never talk about grace, um, then you are setting people up um, to fall for shame, for a nightmare, because it's, it's what Jesus talks about with the Pharisees. You tie burdens to their backs, but you don't lift a finger to help them. Mm. And I think if we tackle any of this topic and we don't talk about grace, um, then we are going to cause more damage than, than we are good. And I think for me, reading diana's book um, and hearing about the the kind of messages that were received through the culture that she grew up in um that's what it looks like when we take grace out of this equation um so those are kind of my yeah. my, my thoughts around that that's really helpful starting point um i guess diana there's a couple of things i want to ask you on the back mm-hmm. of that first of all where where do you go with the biblical text and and, and what they have to say about the the place of sex and marriage and so on but also um i guess yeah your experience from from the u.s culture you grew up in about Mm -hmm. whether they have um forsaken grace and you know helping people when they don't get it right um Mm -hmm. within the context that they understand marriage and and whether that that is producing this culture of shame um yeah i'll tackle the uh biblical thing uh first there's a lot of what I was taught when I was growing up was that there's this biblical mandate that you have to save sex for marriage and everything. But if you 
look through the actual biblical um, ideas around sex and stuff, there's not actually a whole lot there about what is about when it's okay to have sex and when it's not and and stuff. And if you look particularly at the Song of Songs, there's a lot of textual clues that the couple in that is unmarried um, and stuff. Like she's still living at home, he's still away, and and um, everything. So it's there's a lot of stuff that says well maybe it's not so clear cut. Okay. And for me, when something is gray like that, I tend to err on the side of, like Sarah said, erring on the side of grace. And for me, that means um, saying, well, it's something where you get to decide in your own personal journey with God. I put that in the in the gray mm. area of mm. this isn't something that will make you not a Christian. Per- personal conscience kind of yes. view. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And And, I mean, practically speaking, would you say that um, you, you you actually, for those who didn't go down the, mm-hmm. the no sex before marriage route in their Christian life, that that, that was good, bad, um, indifferent for them in terms of the... Um, I, for me, it depends on the person um, and stuff. For, for a lot of the people I've met um, and spoken to in the course of researching for my book and everything, um, the, the, uh, the, the ongoing theme is that they didn't regret the choices that they made and stuff. They only felt shame when other people started to shame them for it, when other mm. people said that you've done something that's um, caused you to be broken and dirty um, mm. and stuff. And uh, so it's and did this, you did you find yeah. the church specifically were, were, mm-hmm. were guilty of doing that yes, in the messaging definitely. they were giving? Yep. One of the things that um, I talk about in my book is all these uh, metaphors that we have for talking about our purity and things like that. Like, it's the uh, rose that's been handled by so many people. It's the mm. piece of tape that won't stick anymore. Those sorts of harmful, objectifying um, metaphors that say that if you have sex before marriage, even though there's grace, you're still somehow permanently damaged. You're still right. somehow mm. broken and... Um, there's there's not actually grace there for you. So, so would would you be willing to sort of say to a Christian who mm-hmm. is sort of you know struggling with whether they should or shouldn't engage mm-hmm. that what what would you say it, it's simply about down to your own conscience whether mm-hmm. you, um, I mean I guess you're not advocating you know mm-hmm. one night stands here there and everywhere or anything like that but 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 that within a context I guess of a loving relationship. Mm-hmm. You, you don't see that as problematic. Yeah. Somebody actually asked me uh, last week about um, like they'd been with their boyfriend for like four years and stuff. They're they're sure that it's headed toward marriage, but they're not in a place like financially where they can mm-hmm. get married yet. Mm-hmm. And she was like, is is it OK? And I said, well, pray about it. It's up for your own conscience and stuff. But like, I don't think there's necessarily a moral quandary there. So. What, what would you say to uh, someone in that situation, Sarah? I think one of the struggles we have in our culture is the place that the wedding has taken in the covenant of marriage. Um, and so often the struggle is is that people just quite frankly can't afford to have mm. the weddings that we've been told that we need to have. Mm. But actually um, getting married um, will not cost you very much. And so um, kind of a conversation around actually, you know, if, you, if you're in a point where you know you want to get married, you want to have sex, which I totally get in a relationship, mm. because actually, let's be honest, that's natural and that's normal. And, and that's about, you know, we're drawn to the person that mm. we're with. Um, but if you know that you want to get married, if what's stopping you is not being able to have the wedding that you want, 
then maybe there's something to explore around that because mm-hmm. if you're ready to make a commitment to love and serve and cherish one another for better for worse um, for the rest of your lives together um, I would say make that with your mouth before you make that with your body um, because if you're ready to do it do it right. like don't let don't let the wedding pressures hold you back from from building that relationship with one another um and i and i can understand there's a you know there's a desire for this celebration of a relationship um but i would be saying if all that's stopping you is the financial don't let that stop you from from creating that covenant in your relationship because it's so worth it um i i mean what what do you say to the the view that uh, Diana's put there that as far as she can see it, it's actually rather grey in the Bible as to exactly whether whether sex outside of marriage is prohibited? Um, what, what's your take on that? I think it would be glib to say that um, it's it's obvious. I think it would be glib to say. Uh, to pretend that you can open up and find the thou shalt not have sex before marriage verse. Um, a lot of young people are shocked when we tell them there isn't actually that verse in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're quite clear, there isn't. But I think if you look um, at how it's engaged with as a whole, on the rhythm all the way through, how it's looked at from the pattern of when sex is first mentioned, the context is a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh. Um, it's Genesis. That's the original pattern. And then if you look all the way through at the redemptive narrative, I see it coming back again and again and again to that context. And where there are those who step outside of that, um, I don't see affirmation of that. I see consequence, but I see oodles of grace. So for instance, Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, um, his response to her is not permissiveness but it's radical grace so um there's something about what's happened um and there's so many aspects to that story that we could pull out from the the kind of gender side of things um all of the complexities of that um but what i do see from him is um he doesn't say what you did was fine it was within your conscience it was clearly what you you know what you decided was fine according to scripture he's quite clear that what she's been doing actually isn't what is right because he tells her to go forth and sin no more but he also the radical grace of actually i mean he he doesn't he doesn't create a context where she is stoned to death um he creates a context where she is redeemed where she is seen where she is recognized where he stands alongside her um and where she is utterly restored into the kingdom of god um by what he said and i think for me that is that is the truth that i see the weighting of truth i think lands on that side for me i'm not convinced by um by the arguments that say it's too great to make a call because I don't think it is too great. Mm. I think there is more clarity than that gives credit for. Do you want to respond to that, Diane? I think for me, especially with stories like that, the focus of the consequences of of uh, extramarital sex or uh, premarital sex um, often falls on women. And so when we see mm-hmm. Jesus giving grace to the woman at the well, for example, and stuff. It I see it not as radical grace over her sexual sin, but radical grace over the fact that she is a woman who has done things that are disapproved by her society. And so for me, it's more of a feminist action for him to be giving her grace when her society doesn't. Um, rather than, a, yeah. rather than a, um, a commentary on the, sex, yes. the sexual sin that yeah. might be involved yeah. in the first place. And I- but, you know, I'm not sure I'd I'm not sure I'd separate the two. I think there's room for both in that context. And I think it's really, really important to grasp the complexity of what's happening in terms of gender and actually recognise and acknowledge that Jesus is radical when it comes to women. Um but equally he doesn't he doesn't make it okay that the sexual behaviour has happened. He 
he kind of is quite clear on the boundaries, but radical grace, radical restoration, and treating women in a way that their society did not, um, which I think is really important. Mm. I, I mean, um, we heard what Diana had to say earlier there, Sarah, about in her mm-hmm. experience, um, her peers, a number of them did get married quite early. Yeah. Uh, and you can kind of understand why there might be more of an incentive at the end of the day. Hey, I got married age 21. Um, fortunately, we were very happily married, you know, 16 years later. And um, we have four children as well. But the um, the fact is, it, it doesn't always work out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. what, what's what's your take on that, Sarah? Yeah, I'm, I think it's heartbreaking. And I think I think we focus too much on sex and too little on relationships. I think that we we are guilty in the church sometimes of a culture that says if I can just get them to their wedding night with their virginity intact then everything will be okay Mm. Um, but we're not in we're not in the business of virginity we're in the business of discipleship Mm. and actually discipleship is a lifelong journey that says it matters who you are and how you live at every stage of your life in a holistic way that embodies your whole life so when we get too fixated on just ticking a box on sex that gets them to their wedding night and then sets them off without any skills um, I don't think we're doing it right I'm absolutely with Diana that I just think that culture is horrendous and should stop but actually I think we need to teach young people what whole life discipleship looks like in which their sexuality is a part of it and in which we help people to understand that relationships are difficult and you should enter into them with wisdom um, and actually you're probably going to need some support along the way if you're going to make it for a lifetime Um, and where we don't do that and we just abandon people into a relationship that they've got into because we haven't let them have sex in any other context then i think we failed the young people that we've worked with Mm. what what, do you agree with that diana yeah for the most part um a lot of what i talk about in my book is about uh not necessarily like doing a go your own way whatever sexual ethic but about like consciously and and intentionally developing a sexual ethic that works for you that Mm. develop that is based on healthy relationship dynamics and healthy um, approaches to sexuality. Because I think one of the major things, um, and I think Sarah would agree with me on this, uh, one of the major problems right now with the the church conversation about sex is that we put so much emphasis on sexuality and on the the virginity part of it is that we don't teach anything else about um, healthy sexuality because we're afraid, especially in America, that if we teach people what healthy sexuality looks like, that they'll actually go out and do it. And that's, that's like the most horrifying thing for a lot of people. So We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with uh, more from my guests today, Sarah Long and Diana E. Anderson. Uh, we are dealing with adult themes on the show today, and I just want to reiterate that to warning that uh, if you've got uh, children in the vicinity, uh, you may want to be aware of that as you listen today. We're asking on Unbelievable, should Christians save sex for marriage? And uh, we've got two different perspectives, a lot of shared views as well, I think, a, a lot of shared wisdom um, between my two guests today. But also uh, there is a difference of opinion on, on whether uh, sexual, sexual relationships are legitimate um, outside of marriage pre-marriage and so on so um we're going to be continuing to discuss this with my guests in a moment's time join us on the other side of a very short break before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast i've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this easter as you know nt wright is without doubt one of the greatest christian thinkers and apologists of our time 
and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to today's programme. And on Unbelievable today, we're asking, should Christians save sex for marriage? Uh, As I've mentioned earlier, today's show does deal with some adult themes, and you may want to be aware of that if you're listening this Saturday afternoon and you've got children in the vicinity. Uh, My guests today are Diana E. Anderson, author of Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity. Uh, She says that the evangelical Christian purity movement she grew up in in the US can produce a culture of shame for young people, and the church should reconsider its approach, see that sexual relationships before marriage aren't necessarily out of bounds for Christians. Uh, Sarah Long is uh, the youth advisor for the Diocese of Winchester and has been part of the Romance Academy, an organisation encouraging young people to develop a healthy view of sex and relationships. Uh, She thinks there's still life in the view that uh, sex should be saved for marriage. It's best expressed within marriage. And um, we've been hearing different takes on what the Bible has to say about it and also um, to some extent different takes on the, the cultural background that you're both coming from um, there is a big obviously cultural divide not only church wise but also I guess educationally between the two of you um, uh, just before we come back to you Sarah to, to maybe get your thoughts on that um, uh, if you're interested in getting in touch yourself about this I can encourage you to email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk towards the end of today's show we'll hear some of your responses to previous editions of the show as well and hear what you had to say on some of the recent discussions. Uh, last pro- last week's programme on uh, whether the problem of evil presupposes God uh, was an interesting philosophical debate and we'll be hearing some of your responses to that a little later on. Uh, all of today's show available and uh, the ways to comment uh, from the programme itself, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable and, of course, links there to the conference coming up in July. Um Sarah, um, I mean, one of the things that you recognise is that there there is a, a big difference, you know, between the UK and mm. US, uh, both how sex education is taught, the culture within the churches, and so on, uh, and the way it's brought across. What what did you want to say around that in particular? Yeah, I mean, uh, Diana's a lot more equipped to speak into the American education system than I am. Um, but having uh, read the book, and please do correct me, Diana, if I if I miss anything. Actually, um, in the states, there's a significant amounts of abstinence-only education. Mm-hmm. So um, the only thing that can be taught in school is abstinence. You can't mention sexual health, can't mention condoms. You can only talk about um, abstinence as the only option for young people. Um, and and actually our context over here is radically different from that. So um, 
uh, SRE, Sex and Relationships Education, isn't statutory um, uh, on the national curriculum. So what has to be covered on the na national curriculum um, is the biology of sex. Um, and there'll be some bits and pieces probably around sexual health, um, protection, contraception, all that kind of stuff that's on that. But actually what we're seeing increasingly over here is that young people are saying, I learned about the biology and nobody talked to me about the relationships. Um, and so young people themselves are starting to campaign alongside sexual health um, organisations and sexual, sex and relationships organisations to say, we want to be talking more in schools about relationships, about how we make decisions about sex and relationships um, and how we deal with that. So the big question over here is, um, should sex and relationships education become statutory? So should it go onto the national curriculum and be a part of what young people must study at school? Um, and if it does that, what should the content be? Um, and so there is quite a radical cultural difference there about the, the context that young people are absorbing information from, um, the, the normalisation effect of that. So what is being presented to young people as normal behaviour, normal expectations in the US versus the UK? Um, and then because of that, actually, what is the role of the church in speaking into that? And what message does the church have to say that enhances the conversations that are going on mm. um, and helps young people to think more broadly what why, why does the u.s education system only why, why is it only allowed to to promote abstinence over and above any other um well there are some it depends on which school district you're in right. and stuff but there's a lot of federal funding for um abstinence only education programs which ends up going into a lot of faith-based programs and stuff which is another questionable thing with our separation of church and state um, but a lot of it is that local communities uh, demand that that they're that have this idea that parents should be teaching the kids about sex, and so schools' only responsibility is to teach them to um, be abstinent and stuff, and not actually teach them anything about the biology or the reproduction, because that's the parents' job. Um, and so there's this feeling in the U.S. that schools are overstepping their bounds if they teach about sex in a in in the classroom. And, stuff. and what results is that there are kids whose parents don't talk about it and the school only te teaches them abstinence, so they don't know anything. Right. Um, and, and that's where you get all kinds of myths and yes. things yep. popping up, isn't it, in young, yep. for young people and so on. And in the end of the day, I, I don't think anyone's denying that they're otherwise in a very highly sexualized culture in mm -hmm. terms of the the music and entertainment yep. industry around them and everything else. So, so you know relying on that alone for your sexual education is probably mm -hmm. not the best idea yeah most of the uh young people i've spoken to um learned like um a lot of the details about sexual questions that they, that they had and stuff from googling them mm. online and mm. stuff rather than a trusted teacher or a trusted uh youth pastor or even a parent yeah um i mean is is this where the church has stepped in in a sense um to to, to try and give a sense of I don't know some some guidance, mm -hmm. even if you don't necessarily always agree with with the way they they do set yeah. it out. Diana, there there are some churches that are doing some very very good um, work in this area. Uh, the United Church of Christ, which is a more liberal denomination, has a curriculum called Our Whole Lives, which is similar to what the Romance Academy does um, in terms of teaching about uh, relationships and what's healthy and what's consensual and what that looks like rather than um, just saying, you know, don't do it ever sort of thing. Um, whereas in the church environment that I grew up in, 
we had talks about like all the consequences of what would happen if you had sex before marriage, like mm. all the STDs, the potential pregnancies, all these um, like horror stories and stuff. So, so to it, scare you kind us. of yeah, it felt like there was a sort of scare approach. Yes. don't ever do yep. this, and basically yep. you might die if you have sex before yes. marriage, kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I mean. <laughs> What what's the best approach in your 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 terms, Sarah, for the way churches, if they do hold to you know a traditional sexual ethic and, and would like to see that uh, adopted, possibly by their young I, people, what what what's the best way to go yeah. about it? We uh, we talk a lot about uh, creating curiosity, not compliance, um, and so the horror story model um, is all designed uh, to get young people to be compliant for long enough. Um, for the goal of achieving they just don't lose their virginity or get pregnant until they're married Um, so if we can get them just to agree with the rules and the problem is the model doesn't work and it doesn't work on a number of different levels it doesn't work when the hormones kick in because all of a sudden everything you've told me about the horror stories actually doesn't matter in my brain because my (laughs) brain is flooded with hormones and I'm with someone who I'm attracted to and actually I really passionately care for them and now I really don't care Mm. so it doesn't work in those contexts at all it doesn't ring true Um, sometimes young people have sex and they're like oh my goodness I actually kind of enjoyed that and everyone told me I'd hate it but I enjoyed it so therefore everything's not true Um, but also um, it sets young people up to fail in the long term because there's this funny expectation in the church where that happens which is if we just terrify them about sex until they get married then they'll have great sex Mm. Um, and the logic of that is if you've spent years telling people that sex is this terrible thing that guys are only out for one thing that women you'll hate it um, how on earth do you expect them to function well once they get married Mm. And actually, does that even ring true to how God talks about marriage and how God talks about sex? And actually, the Bible's pretty clear that sex in the right context is a good thing. And that in, so in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, couples, if you stop having sex in order to pray, please make sure you start having sex again. Because actually, sex in a relationship, in a covenant marriage relationship, is good. It's a good thing. And so um, I believe it's about giving young people space to um, talk honestly about their values and perspectives. Um, and that might mean that they say some things that you disagree with and, and that scare you as a leader, but it's important to make sure the space is safe for them really to process that stuff. It's about giving perspectives and wisdom and sharing stories from those who've walked past before. Possibly they've made good decisions and these has been the outcomes. Possibly they've made what they feel are bad decisions and this is some of the outcomes. Um, I think you have to make space to explore those options, to have conversation, to reveal actually what is the possibility. What if, what if? Um, sex can be something different from what culture is telling you what if sex can be intimate and life-giving and something that enhances a faithful lifelong relationship what if there's something better that god's designed it for what what might that look like helping them to mm, imagine that i'm also aware that that it's not just the the secular education side that that is different there there is obviously a difference in in terms of the kind of church probably situation Mm -hmm. that that Diana mm-hmm. grew up in and that you grew up in and I perhaps grew up in Sarah in as much as um, it, it sounds like you grew up in, in more of a bubble overall mm-hmm. possibly than, than is even possible in the UK where um, mm-hmm. if you are a young Christian going to church mm-hmm. you're more than likely going to be surrounded by non-Christian friends at school um, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily mm-hmm. going to a Christian school and then followed by a Christian university mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing so so does the context make a difference here in terms of the way young people in our setting are, are processing it if they are coming from a sort of evangelical church background Sarah how do you mean? Well, I, I guess I'm thinking that there was more, pe- perhaps, of a peer pressure on someone like mm-hmm. Diana mm-hmm. to 
uh, follow a certain sexual ethic than there is generally among young Christians in the UK, um, just because yeah. there, there there isn't simply as much of a sort of evangelical sort of uh, broad based church yeah. kind of um, setting within which to, to kind of to, to, for that to be placed. I, that, that's just my sense. I don't know what what you think of that. Yeah. Sarah. That could, that could well be true. And actually, um, one of the challenges then that faces us uh, as kind of youth leaders in that context is um, how do we walk with young people knowing that they live in a culture that basically says, what on earth are you talking about? Just get on with it. It's fun. Mm, mm. So if they have made a decision to do something different, um, for one thing, we, we need to walk with them, support them, resource them, talk with them, um, help give them space to come when they're no longer sure if this is true, when they have made decisions that stand outside what they uh, thought they believed um, originally and actually a safe space for them to process because this whole thing is a journey and it's a journey of um, growing into a decision, thinking about the decision, re-evaluating the decision, looking at relationships. It's discipleship and we walk mm. alongside them in every other area of their lives. So why wouldn't we walk alongside them in the area of relationships and sexuality? Um, and I think the problem is um, sometimes we get we get caught up in, in the idea that they've got one shot at this and if they mess up that one shot their entire faith and reality and life is down the drain mm. but that's not the model of Jesus that's not grace um, we're walking with our young people um, in how they approach um, all of their life and this is just another aspect of that and we just need to chill out a little bit I think it's important mm -hmm. it has an impact on their lives and their relationships but actually we care about them as whole beings we care about mm. them as more than their sexuality more than their virginity and we're setting them up for a lifetime following jesus and when that is our perspective then we can walk with them without the paranoia that sometimes comes out of these discussions if we've got to fix it now mm. um what, what, what do you yeah. what do you do what do you make of the way sarah would would advise uh young uh, youth pastors mm -hmm. church leaders and so on who are dealing with young people I actually really like um, that Sarah used the term safe space because that's something that I don't think uh, the current church, at least not in the U.S., does enough of in terms of actually creating a space where students can come, uh, where young people can come forward and talk about issues that they're having without immediately thinking that they're going to be judged or told that they're mm. sinning or that they mm. need to get back on the right track or whatever. And creating that sort of sp safe space where they can feel free to be themselves is really important and we need to have that within sexuality education i mean would it be fair mm. to say that it's probably the case that for a lot of young people in those churches mm -hmm. the what they're presenting to their youth pastor mm -hmm. and maybe their youth group is is quite different to what's going on oh absolutely in the background yeah yep because yeah. because i think that there, there can be it can set up i suppose this mm -hmm. kind of dual life mm -hmm. kind of existence for for young christians which as you say, maybe they need the space to be absolutely honest with, with where they're actually at with, with what's going on in their sex life. Yeah, and when you're functioning uh, in terms of teaching your sexuality from a, f a fear-based and shame-based uh, position, you set yourself up for creating those sort of fake fronts that people mm. have about it. It doesn't allow honest conversations about sex. It doesn't allow honest conversations about consent. It does not allow honest conversations about um LGBT issues. It doesn't allow honest conversations about anything related to our sexual lives. I mean, there is yeah. this this issue that sometimes gets raised as well about the, the potential issue that mm -hmm. if, um, say, a church is teaching its young people mm -hmm. abstinence, um, that if a young person then does get into a situation where mm -hmm they you know nature takes its course and they really you know things mm -hmm. happen they're not going to be in a position to actually 
have uh, contraception or whatever you yeah. know and, and so the situation is kind of made worse in a way because mm-hmm. because suddenly uh, all other kinds of complications yeah get brought and, in yeah and that's definitely a thing where uh, where um churches have taken taken such a hard stand on saying abstinence 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 that like when the inevitable does happen these kids are unprotected they they um have a teenage pregnancy or they um, have no idea of where to turn to when they have these issues and they don't know how to protect themselves from um, disease or from unwanted pregnancy or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, what do you kind of, I guess these are the practical aspects of, mm-hmm. of um, Sarah taught, you know, teaching some form of abstinence. Um, I mean, how, how do we guard against, as it were, I guess doing it in a way such that you don't, I guess, um, end up encouraging young children, uh, young people to to do things that might end up being unsafe mm. because of the way that you know when hormones uh, attack, as uh, as you say, you you sometimes mm. don't, you know, mistakes get made, and you uh, and and I can see that it's it's probably quite easy in that sense for someone who thought they were, you know, gonna. They would never need to have a, a condom or whatever mm-hmm. to, to suddenly find actually I'm um, I'm now in a situation where where maybe it's all gone wrong. Um, I mean, how, how do yeah. churches avoid that kind of situation? Yeah, that's challenging. I think um, I mean just kind of reflecting on a few things that came up there. I my principle is you can you can preach on a lot of things um, in a with great clarity so long as you make space for people to disagree with you. So, for instance, I would be fine with um, a youth leader coming into a youth group and, and actually presenting abstinence as the best option, as long as there was space um, for the young people to push back, disagree, and leave saying whether or not they disagree and actually being being allowed to say that. Um, and uh, we talk a lot with young people about not feeling like you've got to win the battles. Um, so, you know, you might have a series of conversations with young people over a series of five years about this stuff. And actually, in many of those conversations, a young person will walk out the door thinking something completely different to you, um, if not all of those conversations. And that's okay, because actually the dialogue is what's important. And some of the conversations that I treasure most have been ones where young people have come to me and said you know you've talked about it this way this is where I'm at it's completely different and actually I'm in a relationship and and I'm thinking about all of this stuff to do with sex and relationships because it's really difficult and we share a little bit we share stories we talk about you know I'll talk from my perspective about here's how I'm doing my relationships and here's why I'm doing it that way but actually do you know what I completely understand that it's difficult Um, and so we'll have an open conversation and I know that they'll leave and actually they might leave and go straight out and sleep with their boyfriend and I I don't want that for them but let's have another conversation another week another week another Mm. week because Mm. it's it's a long it's a long game Mm. and i think those kind of contexts make space um for you to to talk to young people about okay you're in this relationship with this guy how are you taking care of yourself um and to be really clear that actually you know what for me here's what i passionately think would be best for you but you get to make that decision because you're growing into an adult. Um, obviously, there's some age range issues in that. You wouldn't be saying that to a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that kind of conversation, if you're having it with a 17, 18-year-old, is very different. If you're having that with a 12-year-old, then you've got to have some serious safeguarding conversations. Um, but um, I think we we have to make space to to not have to win every conversation and because that's when young people feel like they have to walk around with masks on because they know there's no point in talking to you because they're just going to have to agree with you in the end um, and it's that kind of context that really leads young people into vulnerable places i think 
Yeah, um, all, all good stuff. Thank you um, both. Um, it's a really interesting conversation. And again, if you are listening and you'd like to take part, you'd like to add your voice on this, I'd be interested to hear from you. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk if you want to get in touch via email. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. We've been talking today about uh, should Christians save sex for marriage? Uh, again, uh, today's show dealing with some adult themes and just be aware of that if there are children around. But um, my guests uh, are Diana E. Anderson and Sarah Long. One thing that um, we haven't covered up to this point I'd like to touch on before we get to the end of this section of the show is uh, I, I mentioned we, we are in a highly sexualized culture today mm. than even when I was growing up you know I'd say that what's available is it has you know vastly you know gone up um, so access to pornography and we constantly get new figures about the numbers of young people accessing pornography online and so on how does that all play in um, would you say uh, Diana to to the way that young people are kind of i don't know what the, the expectations are around sex and sexual relationships and that kind of thing i think my worry with pornography is not necessarily that um kids are accessing it like of course i don't think 11 year olds should sure. be accessing it or whatever but the the what they're being taught about sex as unrealistic and that they're being taught to objectify women and particularly young men, young heterosexual men are being taught to objectify their partners um, and and uh, see sex as this um, strange performance when really it's it's um, something that can be funny and messy and 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 honestly kind of strange so it's um, it's causing all the uh, young people to have these unrealistic expectations about sex and mm. reinforcing a lot of anti-woman ideals um, in that. And that's um, my main issue with the increasing access to internet porn. Yeah. No. I, I mean, you probably share some of those concerns, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, do you do you think that it, the, the, the ease of um, access and the fact that young people are accessing it has changed the game as far as the way they view sexual relationships and so on? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I think uh, a lot of adults would, would be slightly mind-blown by what young people know about if they were having the kind of conversations that, that we have with young people about sex and relationships. Mm. Um, young people's knowledge um, of sexual acts is sky high, um, but their understanding of um, sexual intimacy, of how you do relationships, of, of what the purpose of sex might be, um, is tiny because porn can't offer that. Porn can't teach them that at all. So, um, I think porn is is a huge challenge um but actually I put it in the challenge um again of it's a holistic sexuality it's, it's about discipleship because you could argue they're not going to lose their virginity through porn so if virginity is the goal then porn can be fine but actually mm. I think the issue is how do we how do we let our sexuality um be formed by our relationship with Jesus? How do we um, follow Jesus in all areas of our lives and learn to be more Christ-like? And I think some of these issues around objectification, around the selfishness of porn, around the impact that it has on our ability to connect to others sexually um, mean that porn isn't isn't healthy for us. And that fits into a broader conversation about what does it look like to, to hold our sexuality as disciples of Christ? Um, and that's the kind of conversation that I'd be having in a church, um, in a school, I'd be helping the young people to think about 
how is what you're seeing impacting you? Mm. What, you know, mm. is it good for you? Is it healthy? What kind of relationships do, do you want? All do we just sort of have to accept that however many um, parental blocks and things we, we put on our internet filters and so on, young people are going to encounter pornography and, and we just have to live with that as a, as a modern reality and, and kind of prepare them for living in, in a world in which they will know um, far more about the graphics ins and outs of sex than than they ever used would have known you know in, in a in a different generation yeah i mean i think uh, to be honest what was softcore pornography and seen as pornographic is now is mainstream so uh game of thrones music videos that kind of stuff our tolerance level for kind of sexual content and things um has shifted mm. so young people are in a sexual arena from a very young age so we do have to accept that now there are sensible precautions that parents particularly of young children can take to minimize the likelihood that very young children are going to encounter yeah. hardcore internet pornography and i think those are just sensible precautions but you're not going to stop a teenager with with filters it's just mm. not going to happen they're mm. going to encounter it somewhere so actually we need to be helping young people to to decide how they want to engage um with pornography and what is good for them and what is healthy and what impact is that going to have on the long term on the kind of relationships and the kind of sex that they will um be preparing themselves for because actually the, the decisions we make today form us into the kind of people that will be later yeah. in life and so um i think we need to have a lot of conversation and we talk a lot with parents about having that conversation teachers with having that conversation and youth leaders um because the world is what the world is now we can't put um put that back in the box it's out there um but we also just can't abandon young people to try and figure that out yeah I, I guess it's what you said earlier about your kind of what, what you're you seem to be wanting to fight sarah is the almost inevitability that um young people will go out and have sex because that's just mm. the way things are uh, and 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 i mean i mean i don't know whether diana you you want young people to, to be able to have you know be able to make their own conscious decision about what's best for them mm-hmm. um without necessarily it being sort of taught as this is the only way of thinking about it i mean i mean my only concern is that um it, you know the reason maybe some churches do kind of take such a sort of you know batten down the hatches approach mm-hmm. to this is because they see the only message they're going to get outside the church is you can do whatever you like it's absolutely fine go for it guys kind of thing and and i can understand the concern there mm-hmm. that that um they're fighting a battle essentially against a, a highly sexualized do what you want kind of culture yeah and i think seeing it as an us versus them battle sort of thing um actually only adds fuel to the fire of mm. the the problems that that creates because it's n- neither one teaches healthy relationships in terms of like either scaring people into abstinence or, you know, just do whatever feels good is also that doesn't mm. teach you how to approach sexuality in a healthy manner. It doesn't teach you how to make your own decisions as far as your your um, personal boundaries and your ethics are concerned. It doesn't um, give you the tools that you need to actually like grow up and be a, a sexually healthy person um and so so i think church's roles in response to um a highly sexualized culture is not to um as you said batten down the hatches and um sort of hide by it by preaching abstinence all the time but to engage with it and say okay so why is this unhealthy why are we um why is this a problem for young people why do we mm. Um, want to run counterculture 
counterculturally to that. And I think that's something that Sarah would would agree with. Yeah, um, it it sounds like, yeah, you'd be sympathetic to that way of looking at things, Sarah. Yeah, I I think just ultimately, I think the church has good news about sex and relationship. Like we, the gospel is good news. The message that Jesus gives us is good news, and I think it is good news that long-term relationships are possible. That there are things that we can do ourselves to build long-term relationships. That God is in the business of faithfulness. That He's faithful to us, and that He helps us in faithfulness. And I think it's good news that sex plays a part in that. That sex isn't just a consumable thing for pleasure, an itch that we scratch but actually that maybe there's more to sex that sex can be important that sex can be rich that sex can be life-giving to a relationship and it can you know it can give actual life at times um i think we have good news and i think in the uk um we don't need to be shy about about sharing good news but i think what we don't want to fall into is is kind of what the states have done which is imposing good news and imposing mm, structures mm. and and kind of imposing that on people because i think do you know what i think scripture and a gospel um it does its own advertising it's good enough when we get the message right actually this good news that we have it's attractive and it's life-giving and it's good um, and and i'm passionate about communicating that to young people and by all means let them debate it let them disagree sure. with it but ultimately i think it's strong enough good news that it rings as true okay we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be into the final part of today's discussion here on unbelievable hope you're enjoying today's program and you can join us right through to the end of today's show welcome back to the final part Part of today's show, Unbelievable, is the programme that brings Christians and non-Christians together every week for dialogue and discussion. Hope you're enjoying your Saturday afternoon or you're enjoying whatever day of the week you're listening to us on via the podcast. Uh, that's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Thousands of people download the show or uh, listen to it online. So uh, if you'd like to get hold of uh, this show, recent edition to the programme, that's the place to go. premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, don't forget that Faith Explore which uh, unbelievable is part of every saturday brought to you in association with premier christianity magazine and uh, if you want to get yourself a free sample copy of the magazine uh, we like to broach these kinds of issues too the kinds of issues around sexuality faith uh, theology apologetics uh, and all of that uh, in the magazine every month so uh, again uh, premierchristianity.com slash free sample for a free sample copy of the latest edition and uh, coming up uh, after unbelievable we'll actually be talking to someone uh, with whom um, the magazine has been doing a major project recently called The Stations. It's coming out in our April edition, which lands in the coming week, um, uh, lands around the the middle of March, and it's a reinterpretation of The Stations of the Cross through the images and stories of today's refugees. I'm going to be talking to the uh, artistic director for that project that we've been working with, Martin Adamson, between four and five today on the profile so listen out for that coming next after unbelievable or online at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile um and uh, next week on unbelievable if you can join us again uh, we're going back to something more of a, a science and faith kind of debate uh we're going to be looking at the issue of the fine tuning of the universe and uh, is it evidence for god um some really high profile guests join me for that so i'll tell you who they are towards the end of today's show so listen out for more details and if you can listen in at the same time next week you're listening to unbelievable on premier christian radio Today on the show, we've been asking, should Christians save sex for marriage? It's been uh, my pleasure to be joined by Diana E. Anderson and Sarah Long, 
Diana is author of Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, talking about the Christian purity movement she grew up in in the USA and why she believes it can unfortunately produce a culture of shame in young people. She thinks the church needs to reconsider its approach to sex and marriage. Sarah Long is a youth advisor for the Diocese of Winchester, was part of the Roman Romance Academy for some time, and, um, well, she had a lot of agreement for some of the points Diana's making, but believes there is still life in the view that uh, sex is best expressed within marriage and that that can be taught to our young people today. So just in the the, the time we've got, um, folks, I wondered if we could start to, to wind things up. I mean, Romance Academy, uh, and I'll make sure that there's links to it from today's um, website, Sarah, uh, has it seen positive impact? I'm sure it has um, among young some of the young people it's engaged with in, in, in terms of changing their view on sexuality, maybe from, I guess, uh, the, the more progressive sort of very uh, anything goes kind of approach to, to something that's a little bit more... Um, uh, well, for want of a better word, conservative, but I, th- I think you probably wouldn't probably put it that way yourself, would you? No, probably not that way. Um, yeah, we've had a range a range of kind of experiences with young people. There's probably two two stories um, that stick in my mind. One um, one is was a, a girl that we um, worked with for a while in one of our romance academies, um, who actually was um, was in uh, an exploitative relationship. So um, there was a much older man um, who was dating her. He would pick her up after school um, and exchange um, sexual favours for fast food with her. And when we started working with her, social services were involved but she was still continuing that relationship because she thought that that was love she thought that was what love looked like that was that was her picture and as we worked with her and talked about um, relationships healthy relationships love sexuality all of that kind of stuff um, she was able to kind of extract herself from that dynamic and and discover something different about relationships um, discover something much more healthy um, and and the guy that was exploiting her is now um, in prison which is mm. phenomenal um, mm. Um, the other, the other kind of, I guess, less dramatic shift was um, I was uh, running a youth group um, with with my mum of all people, believe it or not. Um, and uh, at the end of the youth group, we had a bunch of kind of seventeen-year-old lads who, who just didn't leave; they just wanted to hang out and chat. And um, they started talking about sex. We didn't bring it up; they wanted to talk about it. Um, and um, one of them commented that um, having sex, it it's like a club that other people are in and you think you've got to join but once you've joined it you can't really remember why you thought it was such a great idea to be there in the first place Mm. Um, and another one of them said yeah do you know what I first had sex because I thought that was where you found intimacy. I was told that was where intimacy was. But I've realised actually that I can find intimacy in my friendships. And I'm really now trying to figure out what does intimacy look like in my friendships instead. Um, and so actually, there's been we've seen a lot of progression. And sometimes it's little and sometimes it's big. But, mm. but opening up the possibilities to young people who've been told that sex is inevitable and it has to look like this. That actually, maybe there's life in treating sex differently. Um, it can be phenomenal for for young people to discover that as a possibility. Yeah, I, I'm sure you applaud those kinds of uh, changes in in young people's thinking uh, yourself, Diana. Yeah, absolutely. Having a the ability to recognize when something is unhealthy and exploitative in the in the case of that young woman, um, and so is really an important part of of developing a healthy sexuality and developing a healthy view of sexuality. And with my work that I do, a lot of it is simply helping women to realize that shame doesn't have to be a part of their their sexuality and their sexual life, that um, they can 
experience who they are and experience natural sex drives without having to feel fear or shame or horror over over these perfectly mm. natural things. But but you would so. say in the end, obviously, that you do mm-hmm. believe it's possible to have healthy sexual yep. relationships out before marriage that, mm-hmm. that won't in relationships that may never lead to, to marriage in the end. Yeah, you, you I don't think see it's a possible. Problem with yeah. that. Um, yep. And uh, I mean, for you, Sarah, is is it kind of a, a non-negotiable in the end that that at least from your personal perspective, you would say that the, the best situation is if you're considering sex is, is it is that it needs to be in that context of a a marriage relationship. That's that's kind of the the bottom line for you. Yeah, I would, and and the reason I would would probably come down to what is the purpose of sex. Mm. Um, so I think you can have pleasurable sex, you can have faithful sex, you can have enjoyable sex, you can have sex that procreates um, outside the context of marriage. But for me, those aren't the purpose of sex. For me, the purpose of sex is a physical um, physical expression of sacrificial love that leads to intimacy within the covenant of marriage, that gives life and intimacy and develops the covenant of marriage. That's the purpose of it. Now, you can't extract that purpose from marriage. You can extract the act and the act will do all sorts of things outside of that but actually ultimately I believe that sex was designed for that lifelong covenant of marriage that reflects the covenant that God has with us as his people um, and it's designed to be life-giving and nurturing and loving in that context um, so that's where, where I would I would land and that's how I've um, that's for me been how I've built my sexual ethic in my life um, I've made decisions outside of that but in the end um, for my husband and I that's the that's the route that we took through four and a half years of dating before we mm. got married to say actually that's what we believe the purpose is and we're gonna put our money where our mouth is and walk with that mm. um i mean obviously i'm sure you, you you would respect that that sarah took that decision um oh absolutely it was her decision to make and stuff and my my um end game is not to like encourage people to have sex outside of marriage sure. but to make their own decisions in a healthy manner and make sure that they're not saving their virginity or their purity out of fear or shame or something that is not of God. Right. Been really interesting to have both your perspectives on the program today. Thank you, Diana, Mm -hmm. for coming in. Thanks for being available on the line, Sarah, today. Um, Thanks so much. uh, You want to find Mm -hmm. out more about uh, Diana and the book she's written? DianaEAnderson.net is the place to go. Um, and uh, romanceacademy.org will um, fill you in a bit more on what Sarah has been involved in in the past uh, as well. Uh, so uh, interesting resources there for young people if you want to look into it. For the moment, thank you both for being on the programme. It's been great to have you with me. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, just before we get to some of your feedback to uh, last week's show on the problem of evil, um, a reminder that Unbelievable the Conference 2016 is available for booking now. And I mentioned earlier on in the show that if uh, you're interested in coming along, you might be interested in the ticket offers we've got. We've got an early bird ticket till the 15th of April. Uh, You can book for just £29 for the whole conference. There's also a student rate of £25. Um, But uh, there's also, um, as well as the conference DVD from last time on offer for those who buy two or more tickets, if you're bringing a 
group, then we can actually offer a discount to 10 tickets for the price of nine. You get one free, essentially. So uh, that's all at the website if you're interested in coming along on Saturday, the 2nd of July, all happening at the Brewery, 52 Chiswell Street, London. That was our 2013 venue. It's a great place to put on a conference. Um, We've got wonderful speakers in the form of J. John, uh, Gary Habermas, Jeremiah J. Johnston, Tanya Walker, Ruth Jackson, Yemi Adeshina. And uh, we'll also be hearing from some of the members of the UK Apologetics Group as well and uh, stories of people who have converted either from atheism or another worldview of some kind. It's good to have those kinds of conversations at this kind of a conference. And we're going to be putting on a really varied platform of seminars, speakers, topics and that kind of thing. I hope there'll be something for everyone at this year's conference. So again, if you want to come along, uh, then uh, don't put it off. Uh, You you don't want to miss the early bird ticket either. Um, So do book in premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 i look forward to seeing you there i've been also alerted of a a really interesting thing that i think uh, anyone who's a scientist in a church congregation might be interested in scientists in congregations is a new awards scheme it's being put together by st john's college in durham where david wilkinson is the principal and and essentially it uh, provides grants of up to ten thousand pounds for new projects designed by local church leaders and science professionals to bring science and theology and faith questions into the learning and worshiping lives of local local congregations of all sizes and types it's uh, supported by scientists the scientists in congregations program and um, what were they looking for is people to apply um, for a grant to start something in their local church so if that's something that you think would be interested in uh, then uh, why not look it up online um, look up for uh, look up scientists in congregations awards scheme and uh, see if you could get a grant to start some kind of a, a local project to do with science and faith in your church um, let's go to some of your feedback and last week we had two young philosophers joining me we had josh parikh who was a young undergraduate at oxford university and what i failed to mention actually on last week's program is that he actually won a, a somewhat prestigious prize for an essay that he wrote on god and the problem of suffering and evil in fact that was where the whole conversation came from in the first place it was the uh, young philosopher uh, philosopher of religion prize um, sponsored by uh, tyndale fellowship uh, so josh Barik was our christian guest and Corey markham was our young atheist uh, budding philosopher uh, doing battle with him on the subject of whether the problem of evil actually presupposes the existence of god uh, tim in kobe japan writes in to say another great conversation of substance i think josh did a great job one thing i think needs to be added to the christian response is that of the cumulative case for christian theism Corey's position was more an emotion-based one using examples similar to what darwin did about seemingly gratuitous animal suffering all the stuff about baby bats being eaten alive etc and supposing that a truly virtuous all-powerful god would not allow such a thing implying therefore that such a god doesn't exist well that certainly does have emotional appeal but in order to have a coherent atheistic position one has to be able to explain all of the evidence we see in the universe from that perspective atheism may be able to give a non-theistic explanation for one particular part of the puzzle but in order to be coherent that same explanation has to be able to account for everything else as well which it most certainly doesn't Uh, thank you very much you mentioned um, jay warner wallace's new book god's crime scene laying that out uh, in eight different ways so um, worth uh, looking into that i'd love 
love to get Jay Warner-Wallace on the show again, actually. So we'll see if we can do it at some point. Mike Ranieri is in Toronto. He says, very good discussion. I was most encouraged by the emphasis on sceptical theism, or what I, what I like to call the sovereignty theodicy, over the usual free will theodicy. Not only is the free will theodicy not found in Scripture, it holds little influence as a responder for the atheist. I'm surprised that the atheist used the example of animal suffering. Has he not seen Disney's The Lion King, which with its uplifting naturalist message of the circle of life? Does the atheist humanist really want to anthropomorphize human emotions onto animals to try and prove their case? As William Lane Craig argues, we don't label as rape animals that copulate by force. To equate animals and humans just confuses the issue and works against the atheist's argument. The implication being that if humans are simply higher forms of animals, then morality becomes simply a sophisticated label for the human animal instinct. Um, Thomas says, great show this week. Josh and Corey both brought lucid and robust insights to the table. For my part, I'm willing to concede to Corey for the sake of argument that one can paraphrase evil in such a way that it doesn't presuppose objective morality or God as a basis for such morality. However, it occurred to me while listening to the discussion that it's actually the term gratuitous that presupposes objective morality. And I'd argue the existence of God as a ground. Josh responded to the use of the term gratuitous by taking the sceptical theism route. I'm interested in taking a different route, though, questioning instead what the naturalist means by gratuitous and showing that it presupposes a thick account of justice that naturalism cannot provide. Corey gave the example of the death of baby bats in order to fuel our intuitions that some evils are gratuitous. I fully agree that we have these intuitions when confronted by suffering, especially when it seems senseless. But how can these intuitions be grounded on a naturalist viewpoint? An instance of suffering can only be gratuitous if there is some way in which it might become justified. To speak of suffering as gratuitous, then, is to make an appeal to justice. Thank you very much, Thomas. Um, uh, Let's go to someone who uh, wasn't so impressed with the debate uh, before we read some more of those who who were uh, very... Uh, enjoyed it a lot um this in fabian in usa says uh, love the show but listening to this week's debate had to confess i was unusually underwhelmed i suppose it's because the debate was uncharacteristically poorly framed of course the problem of evil presupposes god this that's because trying to make sense of the presence of evil in this world is only a problem if we suppose presuppose the existence of a benevolent omnipotent creator from the atheistic standpoint there is no such problem if what we label suffering is merely a recipe of neurochemical soup that develops in response to given stimuli not conducive to survival the current state of affairs is no not surprising at all the, the burden of the problem of evil is the theists to bear atheists have no such problem uh, we need to unpack these philosophical concepts that muddy the waters more than they advance the debate on a naturalistic view what we call morality is nothing but behaviors selected for through the evolutionary process that are conducive to survival these behaviors are as prescriptive as hunger or the need for sex are we feel the urge to behave altruistically because we're programmed that way there's nothing objective in the sense of transcendent here transcendent moral values do presuppose the existence of god if we do away with utterly implausible platonic views the question is whether transcendent moral values exist being a christian myself i would side with the naturalist here their model makes better sense of the world as we observe it than the theistic model accordingly when it comes to the problem of evil we christians can only play defense and hope that more compelling arguments such as the cosmological teleological and yes the transcendent argument will win hearts to christ says fabian it's interesting that you take that view that you just don't think it is an issue for the atheist because for me that was sort of as josh pointed out um quoting c.s lewis where many atheists have found that they have an inconsistency in their argument against god that if they complain that 
that uh, the world is too unjust for a god to exist, then they have to justify this idea of, of justice and morality and so on. And, and, and that's where it comes from. So uh, I know what you mean. If, if you're just looking at things from an atheist perspective, then there is no moral evil to be concerned about and so on. But I suppose the, pro- the point is, if you are um, going to say that uh, a standard of right and wrong, evil and good exists, which God is would be culpable of transgressing, then you are making a claim which seems, you know, on the argument at least, to depend on the existence of God itself. But um, I accept that you obviously didn't feel that that was quite framed pro- properly, in your view, Fabian. Uh, Piers emails to say, long-time listener, first-time responder, love the show, especially those like this week that help me to think through things in different ways. Well done to Josh, Corey, and yourself for such an interesting programme. Hope you don't mind, but I'd just like to share one thought regarding the debate. I believe Corey was inconsistent with his second line of argument regarding the problem of evil, the internal critique, which he states as thus, and you uh, you actually quote him here from the programme. What we are doing when we run the problem of evil is we're pointing towards certain inconsistencies within the theistic paradigm in order to demonstrate logical inconsistency or incompatibility within that view. And so it is sort of like I'm standing to the side from the outside pointing in at certain things with the theistic view. And if so, it's the case that a theist has any reason to believe that their God would seek to avoid unnecessary suffering, right? Then that seems to me all that we need to have for this problem for it to go through. So I could be a nihilist, morally speaking. I could be a realist or I could be a subjectivist, a motivist. It really doesn't matter. So far in that I'm just pointing to certain things that within the theistic view that I take to be in internally inconsistent so you go on to say peers the issue is that to demonstrate that a worldview is internally inconsistent one must look at what resources within that worldview can answer the apparent challenge here josh appeals to a positive skeptical theism framed through a theology of the cross even though certain sufferings may appear gratuitous we have a limited perspective and as exemplified in the cross maybe tremendous good is born out of such suffering christians may also appeal to other theodicies such as the free will defense or a soul-making theodicy in other words within the christian world view there exist a number of resources that either explain why suffering is necessary or how it's not inconsistent with an all-loving god what's interesting is that Corey concedes that the christian does have adequate resources to deal with the problem of evil within a christian worldview later on in the show and you quote him here one thing i really want to stress at some level the problem of evil to the extent to which it would be persuasive to you very much depends on your view going in so an atheist who doesn't believe in god the sort of suffering we're talking about and the extent of it it's hard for me to see there being any sort of reason for that but i grant that if i believe in god that's your emphasis then it would be much easier for me to at least see or believe that there could be a possible reason for that therefore on that admission of Corey's, the second line of argument the internal critique doesn't have any power according to Corey, if he believed in god he might see or believe that there are possible reasons for suffering consequently if he believed in god suffering would not be inconsistent with a loving god consequently Corey has not demonstrated that there is any inconsistency internal to the christian worldview indeed he has stated the very opposite wow thank you you go on um, in further uh, like manner peers but uh, i think that kind of sums up the heart of the email you had that you really actually felt that that uh, Corey basically um lost the argument effectively by by simply admitting that if he were a Christian, it would be possible that he could see a way in which um, suffering would be permissible. So anyway, um, very interesting. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Here's one from Edie who says, I would ask Corey a few questions if I could. How innocent is too innocent to suffer? 
How young is too young to die? As human beings, we naturally believe in some sort sort of karma. We don't generally see a serious problem with a criminal being made to pay for their crimes. We don't have an issue with an unscrupulous businessman getting ripped off by unscrupulous partners. It's only when someone hasn't done enough bad things to justify the amount of suffering they're going through that we have a problem. So, who is the arbiter of enough bad things to allow a suitable amount of suffering? We don't see a big problem with someone dying when they're over a hundred years old, as they've lived longer than most of us will, and they've had their time. Uh, why do we have a problem with someone dying as a child or even too young, whatever that may mean? If people routinely lived to two hundred years, the one who only lived to one hundred would have been robbed of half their life. Are people complaining that we die at all, or that some people die early? If people never died, then we'd have a massive overpopulation problem, and new ideas wouldn't take hold easily. People in power would stay in power. Maybe we'd still be living in feudal states, as the king would never surrender his throne. Also, evolution requires death to happen,、uh, and so you go on to say, if God is in control, as I believe He is, He determines the length and quality of life of any given person. If He says your time is up, then it is. No one dies early or late by the hand of God. People interfering is another matter, but even so, God isn't surprised. We aren't supposed to be here forever. Our lives here are likely some sort of boot camp to prepare for the next stage. Who wouldn't want to check out a boot camp early, provided it's our time to go? So、uh, you say that in the end, you see the problem of pain. As an incredibly spurious argument,、uh, you're a computer programmer learning,、uh, working on a master's in, in artificial intelligence, and one of the disciplines in AI is reinforcement learning, a mathematical model and set of algorithms for assigning pain, lack of reward, and pleasure reward to the algorithm in order for it to solve a problem. In the problem domain, such as a maze, where you want it to exit the maze in the least amount of time, you need to assign a negative value to every step it gets to take out of the maze. At the end of the maze, the negative reinforcement stops. It's only reward. In completion of the maze by the pain stopping, and、uh, using that analogy, you say as a computer programmer, I see pain simply as our body's and mind's way of telling us that something is wrong. We're incurring damage. Stop doing what you're doing. In programming, we intentionally put logging into our programs to tell us when something goes wrong. The worst case scenario is to have something broken and not knowing. So there you go.、Uh, another potential way of addressing the issue of pain and why. Why it may make sense in the big scheme of things, but、um, very interesting responses. Lots of responses this week to that、uh, program of last week. Hope you enjoyed it too. And don't forget, you can listen online again at premierchristianradio.com/unbelievable. Send me in your thoughts about today's show as well. Look forward to reading them. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk, and you can do it via Facebook and Twitter too. For the moment, thanks for being with me. Let me tell you what's coming up next week. You're unbelievable. <laughs> Well, we're having a complete change of gear next week. We're talking about the argument for God from fine tuning, and two eminent guests join me for that. Robin Collins is probably one of the leading philosophers in the world, making the argument for God from design in the universe. He's going to be in debate with Peter Millikan, Oxford professor and atheist. If you love apologetics, if you love science, if you love debates, you're going to want to come back next week, basically. So see you then. In the meantime, have a good week. And if you can stay with me here on Premier Christian Radio, we've got the profile next as I speak to Mark Steen Adamson.